Welcome to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. Join us in person for worship each Sunday at 9.30 a.m. For more information about Covenant, including discipleship and mission opportunities, visit us at www.covenantpresjackson.org. As we saw in our passage last week, the problem of sin wasn't resolved by the flood. The waters that covered the earth didn't purify the human heart. It wasn't meant to. The flood was a judgment of sin, not God's solution to sin. And so because the human heart remained corrupt, it was only a matter of time for sin to find the opportunity to wreak havoc on Noah and his family, to divide them and all people. It so happened that righteous Noah, the head of state and the head of religion, became sinfully drunk and passed out naked. And he was discovered by his youngest son, Ham. And when Ham saw his father in that shameful condition, drunk, naked, and looking like a fool, he saw opportunity, the chance to promote himself as a patriarch, because Noah clearly was no longer fit for the job. And so he immediately went to his brothers with sinful delight in his heart. But his brothers were honorable. Shem and Japheth covered the nakedness of their father without adding to his humiliation. And this event resulted in a prophetic curse against Canaan, the youngest son of Ham, and a blessing for Shem and Japheth. And that leads us to chapters 10 and 11, which conclude this sermon series. It's a natural place to stop because the first 11 chapters of Genesis are a cohesive unit. They form the introduction to the entire Bible. The main storyline of the Bible begins with chapter 12. At that point, the narrative focuses in on Abraham, a descendant of Shem, and it tells the story of his lineage, all in anticipation of the Messiah, Jesus. And Lord willing, we will return to chapter 12 next year. Chapters 10 and 11 are mostly genealogies. They round out the historical background of the Old Testament. And chapter 10 contains three genealogies, one for each of the three sons of Noah. And it's commonly referred to as the Table of Nations because it shows the origin and relationship of 70 nations. And then there's a fourth genealogy, which concludes chapter 11. That one traces the paternal lineage from Shem to Abraham. And it does so with more information than chapter 10. From it, we can calculate that Noah was still alive when Abraham was born. In fact, Abraham was 58 years old when Noah died. So it's possible that Abraham learned about the flood firsthand from those who experienced it. 
Uh, the genealogies also help us get a sense for when the events in the narrative of chapter 11 occurred because Peleg, a descendant of Shem, was born 101 years after the flood. The name Peleg means division. And in Genesis chapter 10, verse 25, we're told that he was named Peleg because in his days the earth was divided. This seems to be a reference to the division of people that occurred during the events of chapter 11. But before we get into that, I wanted to focus on a bit of detail from the lineage of Ham. Ham's oldest child was Cush, who fathered a man named Nimrod. Nimrod has more said about him than anyone else in chapter 10. He is said to have been the first on earth to be a mighty man. This description recalls the Nephilim of chapter 6, who were the mighty men of old, the men of renown, the ancient warlords, the ruling class. Nimrod was a warrior like them, perhaps a greater warrior than them. He's referred to as mighty three times, and his name means we shall rebel. He was a hunter of men a warrior, and the embodiment of the Mesopotamian ideal of a king. He was unashamed before the Lord, happy to conquer and rule with no regard for God. He established the kingdoms of Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. In addition, he established kingdoms in Assyria, such as Nineveh. Now, this background in chapter 10 gives us insight into the building project of chapter 11. It was led by Nimrod and the descendants of Ham. As they migrated, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now, this is the land of southern Mesopotamia, which is in modern-day Iraq. The Tigris and Euphrates rivers flowed on either side, and so plenty of mineral deposits were left behind, making the plains a fertile area. And so it was a natural place to settle and build a city. Now, Nimrod isn't mentioned in chapter 11, but he's credited for settling the land of Shinar in chapter 10. Perhaps the omission of his name is to highlight the culpability of the people. It was the people who said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. Now, bricks were commonly made with clay and straw and hardened by heat. And the more heat, the harder the brick. The people, taking pride in their work, insisted that their bricks be burned thoroughly. But the whole thing is a bit ironic, as every Hebrew reader would know, because bricks are inferior to stone. As building material. But stones are made by God, and there were no stones in the fertile plains of Shinar. But that didn't matter to them because they didn't need to rely on what was provided by God. They had technology, and they had no intention of giving credit to God for anything. As verse 4 makes clear, they wanted to build in order to make a name for themselves. 
They were not building for the glory of God. This was to be a city of man, built by man and for the glory of man. Like the Nephilim before the flood, the mighty men of renown, Nimrod and his people wanted to make a name for themselves so that other people would fear and respect them, that they would be renowned. This highlights the division of people that had occurred due to sin because everyone on earth is related by just a few generations. They all came from Noah. But now they fear one another and are constructing strongholds to protect themselves and keep others out. And the crowning feature of their city would be a tower with its top in the heavens, as if they could storm the very place where God dwells. And the height of such a monument would be a deterrent to invaders because it would be seen from far away. And it would suggest a great and powerful people. The large buildings are intimidating. Now, later in the book of Deuteronomy, when Moses sent spies to check out the land of Canaan, they came back and said, the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. The size of their cities being built up to heaven terrified them. Now, surely the people didn't literally think that they could build a tower that extended all the way up into heaven. If that was truly their aim, they wouldn't have laid the foundation on a plain, but on top of a mountain. This wasn't an experiment to see if they could build something that would reach into heaven. The idea was that the top of the tower would represent the heavens. It would be a place of worship, not of the Lord, but of the stars. The Babylonians invented the zodiac signs, dividing up the sky into sections and giving meanings to each of the stars there. Now, with the insight of archaeologists, we have good reason to believe that what they were building was a ziggurat. A ziggurat was a notable feature of Babylonian religion. They were built in a pyramid shape about 300 feet tall with three terraces and a temple on top. In the early 1900s, a ziggurat was excavated in Ur. It was dedicated to the moon god and dated around the year 2100 BC, which if that date is accurate, it means that Abraham, who came from Ur, grew up in its presence. According to Mesopotamian myth, the ziggurats were built by the gods. But that myth is torn apart in the biblical account where it's just a structure made by people who were attempting to make a name for themselves. But it's not just a monument to human pride. Verse 4 tells us of another motiv motivation they had. They were building the city and tower to prevent themselves from being dispersed over the face of the whole earth. This is in direct opposition to the will of God. 
The Lord told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, to fill and subdue the earth. And after the flood, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And he even repeated that blessing and command a second time. God's desire is to have his image bearers all over creation. But man's desire, as seen here, is to come together in opposition to God. And that's just as true then as it is today. Now, we might not be tempted to build a ziggurat, but we certainly try to build a name for ourselves. We invest a lot of time, money, energy, and resources into building a life that people admire. And people will commend you for it. Our society rewards pride with fame and money. But if we find ourselves being pressured by others to make a name for ourselves, then that's an indication that we've aligned ourselves with the wrong people. We shouldn't unite our efforts with those opposed to God, but with those striving to obey the Lord. We are to be church members first, building the kingdom of God and citizens second. Now, sometimes the Lord allows us to waste our time building up a name for ourselves, and other times he topples or disrupts our work to get our attention and give us the opportunity to fix our priorities. We see in this passage that even though Ham and his descendants wanted nothing to do with the Lord, God was still involved in their lives. And he knew what they were doing. Verse 5 says that the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. A verse dripping with irony. From a human perspective, mighty Nimrod and his men were building a gigantic tower into the heavens. But from the Lord's perspective, they were children. And he had to come down in order to see their building. Now, they weren't even close to building up into the heavens. And so it is with all the greatest achievements of man, they are small when compared to God and eternity. And yet people spend so much time and energy building things that don't last, things that are here today and gone tomorrow. Let us learn from the early developers in Shinar, the cities, technology, and other markers of civilization are not the basis of our security. And we don't owe it our ultimate allegiance. That belongs to God. And if the choice is between maintaining unity with people or with God, this passage makes it clear that God prefers that we be divided than united in apostasy. And so rather than destroying the people or burning the city down or knocking over the tower, 
which would all be temporary solutions. God did something new, which had a much greater impact on the world. He said to himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And once they couldn't communicate, they couldn't work together. And once they couldn't work together, they no longer wanted to live together. And so they were dispersed over the face of all the earth. In other words, the Lord caused them to do what he wanted them to do in the first place, bear his image all over the world. And whenever man contends with God, God always wins. But there was at least one concession. The people wanted a name for themselves, and they ended up with a name. The city was called Babel, and the etymology of the word reflects both sides of the story. The Akkadian word Babeli means gate of God, which is what they were trying to build, a gateway to heaven. But the Hebrew Bilal means to stir up or to confound. Though Babylon claimed to be the center of the world, the greatest empire in the ancient Near East, in the biblical account, it's just a babble of voices, a confusing mess. And the city of man will continue to show up throughout the Bible, though it'll be a while until they are any sort of threat to the people of God. They were known as both Babylonians and Chaldeans. Abraham lived among the Chaldeans in Ur, but God chose him and called him to go into the land of Canaan. And then the Babylonians don't show up again until late in the book of 2 Kings, when the Lord used them to judge his people for their sin by allowing the Babylonians to conquer them. And the Babylonians were later conquered by the Persians, and then came the Greeks, followed by the Romans, who were in charge during the time of the New Testament. But Babylon continues to show up in the New Testament, not as a city, but as a symbol of man's opposition to God, representing worldliness. And as a city doomed to destruction. Revelation chapter 18 foretells the fall of Babylon, the end of the city of man, in preparation for the city of God, which will be built entirely by God, by the will of God, for the glory of God though that city will be fully established in the new heavens and earth, Jesus inaugurated his kingdom on this side of eternity. And it's a building project we're called to participate in, the church. The church was founded on the day of Pentecost with an event opposite of what took place in Babylon. The Holy Spirit brought unity between people. Christian community was born when a multiplicity of languages was spoken and understood. And in a great variety of languages, people came together and spoke of the mighty works of God. The task of the church and the task of each Christian is to multiply 
fill, and subdue the earth, not through physical conquest, but the building of Christ's church, making the city of God, not the city of man, by sharing the good news of the gospel and participating in the life of his church, not striving to make a name for yourself, which will be here today and gone tomorrow, but building a name for the Lord, which has eternal ramifications. And take comfort in this. When you labor for the Lord, your work is not in vain. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. 